0: Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. histogram number 8347 the day after the day of the doctor the week of November 20th 1983 Welcome back to Retrogram, a podcast from thelogbook.com that thumbs back through the pages of TV history, glances at the corresponding pages of real history, and asks what genre TV was trying to tell us, and if the message still needs to be heard. This edition of Retrogram is just going to jump straight to the end and say, yes, the message still needs to be heard. Thanks for listening. Bye. No, seriously, we are covering some fun shows in this retrogram, and one very, very serious one. And that serious one, in hindsight, seems like it must have seemed even more relevant at the time in light of recent world events. In the weeks leading up to the week of November 20th, 1983, we saw a cellular telephone make its first call in the hands of a paying customer, and a piece of software made its debut that would soon become known as Microsoft Word. Okay, that was the good news. The bad news in those weeks leading up to the week of November 20th, 1983. A Korean Airlines flight was shot down by Soviet pilots when it strayed into Soviet airspace killing all aboard, including a U.S. congressman. A U.S. Marine Corps barracks and a French Army barracks, both in Beirut, were struck by suicide bombers with hundreds of fatalities. The Prime Minister of Grenada was assassinated in a military coup prompting an invasion by American forces that drew heavy criticism from the United Nations. This was not a world at peace. Oh, and in those weeks leading up to the week covered in this show, there are two occasions where World War III could very easily have broken out. Put a pin in that, it is of some minor importance. It was trying to convince all involved to prevent World War III that was on the minds of the makers of one particular movie of the week, a movie that everyone involved fully expected to be controversial. Day After aired Sunday, November 20th, 1983 on ABC. September 1983, just another day on which the news is dominated by a series of Eastern European military exercises conducted by the Warsaw Pact nations, which sure smells like a real live troop buildup. But hey, life goes on, and at Memorial General Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, Dr. Russell Oakes is going about his business as usual, though when his daughter breaks the news that she's moving to Boston, and yes, it's because of a guy, he's apprehensive, in a dad kind of way. And now he has to go home and try to take his wife's mind off of this imminent change, especially since he is soon going to be heading west to Lawrence, Kansas, to do rounds at the university hospital there. In Harrisonville, southeast of Kansas City, a young couple, Bruce and Denise, are days away from walking down the aisle, and the bride-to-be's father doesn't really approve of the groom. Between these two places, an Air Force helicopter drops off three airmen at a fenced-in house that conceals the control room for a nearby underground missile silo, all of it trying hard to look inconspicuous in the rural American heartland. They're here to work on a nearby missile installation that isn't quite ready to fly. And on TV, the news keeps getting worse, culminating in a blockade of West Berlin by Eastern Bloc forces and prompting an armed response from NATO, which in turn prompts an even bigger response. Dr. Oakes has his ear to the news the whole time, and it just seems to him like it's all spiraling out of control. As students, including pre-med student Stephen Klein, line up to register for their classes at the University in Lawrence, just as many students are watching the news and floating their own theories, some wildly misinformed, as to what will go down. The emergency broadcast system sounds, urging residents in and around Kansas City to be ready to evacuate the city. Its proximity to all those missile silos in rural areas makes it a big target. People rush grocery stores, line up at payphones to call loved ones, and Klein decides he's going to try to hitch a ride back to Joplin to see his family. He'll get back to Lawrence before classes start, you know, somehow. Time to pound the pavement in the meantime. Bruce, on his motorcycle, is just trying to get to the Dahlberg farm to make sure Denise is okay. Dr. Oak's 40-mile drive back to Kansas City is suspiciously easy. The lane of I-70 going into Kansas City is practically empty. It's the outbound lane that's choked with a traffic jam of people trying to evacuate the city. This is where everyone is when the missiles are launched, hurtling out of their silos and streaking across the sky. Whether this is the first strike or the response to an incoming first strike, the answer is just minutes away. An airburst over Kansas City instantly takes out the electrical grid and kills every vehicle engine on the ground. Stalled on the interstate, Dr. Oaks sees the first mushroom cloud on the horizon. He ducks down and lies across his passenger seat before the second and the third and the rest. Klein, who has only gotten from Lawrence to Harrisonville, dives into a vacant store to take cover. The Dahlbergs are relatively safe in their shelter, but their youngest was blinded by the flash. Bruce, on the other hand, was vaporized. On foot, Oakes staggers 30 miles into Lawrence in a daze, exposed to radioactive fallout the entire time. The university hospital is overstuffed not just with its existing patients, but with new injuries and people simply seeking shelter. Elsewhere at the university, a science teacher named Huxley gets an amateur radio transmitter set up and tries to call the outside world, but he's only able to reach the hospital building. When Oakes inquires about sending uninjured people to the campus to take shelter, Huxley warns him that it's still far too dangerous. More injured from surrounding areas pour into the hospital until Oakes recommends jamming the doors shut. Days pass. Stephen Klein wanders onto the Dahlbergs' property looking for shelter, and they reluctantly take him in. When Denise loses her marbles and runs out of the house into contaminated air, Stephen brings her back to her family, but she's been severely exposed to fallout, and the effects begin showing themselves quickly as the days pass. Stephen offers to take Denise and the Dahlbergs' son to the hospital in Lawrence, resorting to a horse-drawn wagon to make the trip. Huxley and his students listen as the president finally makes a statement over the radio, but his promises of help to the survivors and his entreaties to their loyalty during the country's attempts to rebuild ring more than a bit hollow. At the hospital, triages have become hospices. The bodies are piling up, and there's talk of digging mass graves on the outskirts of town cholera is almost certainly getting ready to be a problem. As Dr. Oakes tries to take all of this information in, he passes out. When he wakes up, he is no longer a doctor, but a patient. A patient whose hair is falling out, whose skin is pale, and whose injuries are not healing. He wants to go home and catches a ride into Kansas City with the next military vehicle headed that way. On the way, he sees bodies piling up in the streets, looters being rounded up and shot by firing squads, And just no sign of civilization as he knows it. But even in Kansas City, there's nothing left. Disoriented, Oakes sees a family sheltering under a makeshift tent in the rubble and accuses them of being on his property. Then he sinks to his knees, completely lost. The only comfort is kindness quietly offered by the people he was just trying to threaten. It's no way to live, and it sure as hell isn't a proper way to die. The movie ends with the following words on the screen. The catastrophic events you have just witnessed are, in all likelihood, less severe than the destruction that would actually occur in the event of a full nuclear strike against the United States. It is hoped that the images of this film will inspire the nations of this earth, their peoples, and leaders to find the means to avert that fateful day. I left out whole scads of subplots... Because quite a few of the characters in the first hour of the day after, the people whose hopes and dreams were getting up to speed on, are indiscriminately incinerated when the bombs start dropping. And that's probably a wise decision to jolt the audience out of the complacency of sitting through the first hour's tangle of threads of family drama. There is such a tendency to think that the major characters are safe. And since these are the people whose stories are being foregrounded, we will be following them throughout. But that's simply not the case here. Nobody is safe. The Day After was written by Edward Hume, who is the creator of such series as Canon, The Streets of San Francisco, and Barnaby Jones. Um, I believe he also, he very likely got this assignment, writing this script, because he had also written the script for a TV movie of the week about the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre. And, of course, The Day After was directed by Nicholas Meyer of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan fame. The Day After had originally been planned for a spring time slot airing over two nights, but the post-production process was kind of an all-out war unto itself. ABC and Nicholas Meyer disagreed mightily on the length and the content. Meyer finally convinced them the story would be most effective if it was told in a single night. and He felt the script had a little too much padding as it was. Even once this was approved and filmed, there were endless battles with network censors who were saying, you can't show that, you can't say that, with possibly the most ridiculous case of this being their objections to dialogue hinting at Denise having a birth control diaphragm. Okay, okay, you can nuke the heartland of the United States, but birth control? Absolutely not. (laughs) During production, the Department of Defense would only lend its support if the script made it very clear that the Soviets launched their nukes first, something which was not in the script at all and something which Nicholas Meyer flat-out refused to do. Ironically, this puts Nick in some very good Star Trek company just as a sidebar gene roddenberry's first series the lieutenant which ran from 1963 through 64 also lost its cooperation from the military toward the end of its run over an episode dealing with civil rights and racism, of all things. Speaking of Star Trek connections, Nick Meyer was not ABC's first choice to direct the day after. It was originally to be directed by Robert Butler, who had directed the first Star Trek pilot episode, The Cage. Until the internal battles over the development of the movie's script ran so long that Butler left the production so he could focus on other work that he had already booked. Meyer came to the day after, immediately after he finished Star Trek II, and he was, in actuality, the fourth director approached by ABC to take on this project. Also, all of the makeup, including the radiation burn makeup, was created by Michael Westmore. Jeff East, who plays Bruce, was also young Clark Kent in Superman. IMDb has quite an extensive list of people who appear without credit on screen, ranging from Wayne Knight to tennis great Arthur Ashe as a newscaster, to my pal and host of the Trek Files podcast Larry Nemichek, as one of the students in Lawrence watching the missiles launch. Even among the people who were credited, you got names like John Lithgow and Stephen First taking on relatively small roles because they knew the message of the movie was of vital importance. One person Nicholas Meyer brought onto the project who he had just worked with on Star Trek II was B.B. Besch, who is forever known to Star Trek audiences as Carol Marcus. As Mrs. Dahlberg, she doesn't have much to do in this movie except housework and preparations for Denise's wedding, but I think she also turns in the most powerful performance in the whole movie in just a matter of a couple of seconds. When the missiles are launching, and everyone is aware that missiles will be incoming as well, She's upstairs making the bed. When her husband tries to grab her arm to lead her into the basement with the rest of the family, she gives him this almighty shove away and tries to stay on task, leaving him with no choice but to grab her with both arms and haul her downstairs. And she lets out something between a scream and a roar, which the closed captioning just shows as, "'No!' exclamation point." But that doesn't even begin to do it justice. It's like the realization that nothing is ever going to be the same is just being torn out of her gut. And I'd argue that this one moment, that one performance, that's where the movie is politely putting you on notice that civilized society as you know it is about to cease to exist. I mean, what kind of direction do you give an actor to pull something like that out of them? It's just amazing. If all you know her for is Carol Marcus, this is a shock to the system. You may be asking yourself if this edition of Retrogram is truly covering all of the shows that aired during this week. And aside from some daily syndicated episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, it is. But what about Knight Rider and Manimal, you ask? Manimal was already in ratings trouble and had been yanked off the schedule for November to prevent it from harming the ratings of other shows during November sweeps. Yikes. Knight Rider, which NBC aired on Sunday nights, took the week off, very likely to keep it from being nuked in the ratings by the day after. ABC had been running a promotional campaign months ahead of time for the day after and had happily allowed all sorts of rumors to swirl about how violent or controversial it would be. After all, that just keeps people talking about The Day After ahead of time, which means those people will probably be tuning in to watch it. And history shows us that a lot of people were indeed talking about The Day After. I try to flag down instances in Retrogram of shows that were inspired by or affected by historical events, but The Day After is an example of a show that turned around and affected history in its own way. A videotape of the day after was sent to President Reagan, and he watched the tape at Camp David on Columbus Day 1983, over a month before it was broadcast. Here's an excerpt from Reagan's diary on October 10, 1983, as archived on the Reagan Foundation website. Columbus Day. In the morning at Camp D, I ran the tape of the movie ABC is running on the air November 20th. It's called The Day After. It has Lawrence, Kansas, wiped out in a nuclear war with Russia. It's powerfully done, all $7 million worth. It's very effective and left me greatly depressed. So far, they haven't sold any of the 25 spot ads scheduled. I can see why. Whether it will be of help to the anti-nukes or not, I can't say. My own reaction was one of our having to do all we can to have a deterrent and to see that there is never a nuclear war. The Joint Chiefs of Staff also got to watch it ahead of time. A friend of Nicholas Myers, who worked in the government was present for this screening and later told Meyer, this time quoted by Meyer in Empire magazine, quote, If you wanted to draw blood, you did it. Those guys sat there like they were turned to stone. In Reagan's autobiography, An American Life, he directly attributed the day after with affecting his decision to sign the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987. Also in 1987, the day after was shown on television in the Soviet Union. I don't wish to oversimplify things, especially in a here and now in which the United States, indeed the entire Western world, and Russia are once again squinting at each other like they're in Spaghetti Western, but at least for a decent chunk of our lifetimes, the day after, might have helped to save the world. At least for a while. Remember that Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty? Both the U.S. and Russia withdrew from that treaty in 2019. I guess it's time for everybody to watch this damn thing again. Season 1, Episode 11, The Gun, aired in the UK Sunday, November 20th, 1983 on ITV Central. The story so far. The year is 2020. Never mind that whole pandemic thing. Earth has even worse problems. Zelda and her twisted family are trying to take over the Earth by unleashing monstrous aliens and robotic cubes on an unwitting human populace. They've already taken over a Mars colony and are using that as the base to launch constant attacks on Earth. The only thing standing between Earth and total domination? The Terrahawks, a top secret group of alien fighters operating from a hidden base in South America dubbed the Hawks Nest, each with their own unique abilities and vehicles and an army of spherical robot soldiers called Zeroids. The Terrahawks, led by Dr. Tiger Neinstein, battle Zelda and her invaders to protect Earth. And it's all filmed in super macromation and Hudson color. The gun young star has devised a way to daisy chain the cubes zelda's equivalent of the xeroids to form a powerful weapon the more cubes he connects the more powerful the weapon zelda decides to put the weapon into use immediately launching a ship to intercept an earth transport and smuggle some cubes aboard On Earth, Dr. Tiger Ninstein grows annoyed that every zeroid has a different voice and a different accent. Some sound Scottish, and some just stutter. He orders Zero to re-voice every zeroid so they all sound the same. In orbit, Hero is the first to spot the incoming cargo transport ship arriving way off course and sounds the alarm. The decision is made to destroy the cargo ship, regardless of the value of the raw metal ore on board. The cubes eject themselves before the ship goes down in flames. Dr. Ninstein is assured that no living thing could have survived the crash. While the cubes, once night falls, assemble themselves into Young Star's weapon. The next day, the Terrahawks gather as Kate Kestrel records her next pop song, and Dr. Ninstein gets an earful about his revoicing order has caused more problems than it's worth. Next, Dr. Ninstein gets a video call from Johnson, the head of the American Space Agency, who's still fuming about the cargo ship that was shot down. When Johnson says the cleanup could get dicey, Ninstein has a revelation dicey, dice, cubes the cargo ship was used to smuggle Zelda's cubes onto Earth, mobilize all Terrahawks, to the site of a hydroelectric dam near the crashed site of the cargo ship. It's an obvious target for the cubes, and when Hawkeye figures out that the cubes are using their accumulated power to power their weapon, he is able to disrupt their daisy chain, causing a power feedback that destroys all the cubes. Zelda's plan has once again been thwarted, and Kate Kestrel once again sings a song. The End. The credits say this one was written by Koo Garstein. Once again, this is Tony Barwick writing the script under a silly pen name. Now, I could do a whole hour show picking apart the complicated issue of accents across the UK and which accents have been allowed a voice in popular media down through the years. This has changed over time. It has become a bit less of a sticking point. But at the time Terrahawks was being made and shown, regional accents were still being heard by some people's ears as signifiers of class or intelligence, the good old British class system finding another way to rear its head. If you grew up like I did in the 70s and 80s, what you heard a lot of on British TV was what is called a Received Pronunciation Accent, or RP for short, also known as The Queen's English. Even actors who did hail from a part of the UK that had a unique accent were trained to speak in RP accents because it would make them more employable. If you did hear a character sounding conspicuously Scottish or Welsh or Northern or Scouse, It was usually shorthand for that character being stupid or dodgy or similarly not on the level as all the fine middle-class white Londoners that people thought TV should be about. There was eventually a backlash, of course. Honestly, I think the ubiquity of the Beatles may have started the landslide, whether they get credit for that or not. And slowly, the grip of RP has loosened somewhat. Though I really think you have to qualify that with somewhat, because ask yourself this... When he's playing Doctor Who, is David Tennant doing a Cockney accent that is now considered acceptably close to RP, or is he speaking with his normal Scottish accent? Deep down, I'm not sure if this episode of Terra Hawks is making light of that issue, or if it's presenting a kind of watered-down-for-the-kiddos criticism of this element of the class system. If it is a criticism designed to get the audience thinking about it, is it successful in that department? Jury's out. You gotta love that signature illusion of the early 80s. Those two metal rings joined at an angle connected to a turntable, which gives the illusion that both rings are rotating and defying gravity. A couple of years later, the same illusion would be part of the Ronnie's TARDIS in Doctor Who. The illusion had already been used to great effect in Superman and Superman 2 where the two whirling rings were apparently what was confining Zod and his fellow conspirators prior to their being placed in the Phantom Zone. This is not the strongest episode of Terra Hawks I've ever seen, not by a long shot. Granted, the show always has a mere 25 minutes to try to tell a complete story, but The Gun just seems like a script where everyone dried up on ideas all at once. There are so many lengthy miniature model scenes that it feels like the special effects technicians are having to tap dance madly to fill out the running time of the episode because the script and dialogue alone were not going to accomplish that. Ditto the very long scenes of Kate Kestrel's concert. I know that over the course of a season or two, you jam enough of these songs into the show, you get a soundtrack album that you can sell, but it completely kills the pacing on this episode. I think the part that just made me scrunch up my face and say, what, was the whole idea that someone saying something was dicey would set off this huge leap of logic for Dr. Neinstein. Dicey, dice, cubes, that's it, cubes. Uh, Sadly, this episode is a lightweight, even by TerraHawk's standards. Do you know what would make a lot more sense than robots with funny stereotypical accents? How about pausing for a word from our sponsors? Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as Fangirlish.com and PopCultureRetroRama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of the Logbook.com and its podcasts. John Billingsley, Phil Flocks. Join dozens of Star Trek celebrities for eight hours of interviews, panels, performances, and general Trek wallow, all in support of the Hollywood Food Coalition, hofoco.org. Check us out, helping people in need for almost 40 years. Trek Talks 2 kicks off 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, January 14, 2023. Stay hep at trektalks.net. Live long and mark your calendars. The Five Doctors, the world premiere on Wednesday, November 23rd, 1983, on PBS in America? Yeah, that's right. It was not shown until the 25th in the UK. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet, Gallifrey, and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions... Fighting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekicks in the TARDIS are Tegan, an Australian airplane stewardess who stumbled into the TARDIS in 1981 thinking it was an actual police call box, And Turlow, a young man possibly of alien origin, who was stranded on Earth in a boarding school, who was recently discovered to have been working for a powerful evil entity whose employ he chose to leave in order to spare the Doctor's life. The Five Doctors Welcome to the Eye of Orion. It's a planet, apparently, and one with abandoned ruins, and it happens to be one of the most relaxing places in the universe. The Doctor, Tegan, and Turlow are taking a bit of time off from saving all of reality, and soaking up the downtime. The Doctor has even taken the time to upgrade the TARDIS console. But of course, because we can't have nice things... Cut to a sinister, dimly-lit control room where someone with black gloves, blinky lights, and a very futuristic trackball is peeking in on the Doctor's past incarnations on a screen. He dispatches a triangular time scoop to snatch the first Doctor out of history and turn him into something that looks an awful lot like an Eagle Moss figurine. Oh no, is this where all the Eagle Moss Doctor Who figurines come from? That's disturbing. But not as disturbing is the fact that the Fifth Doctor feels it pretty hard when his past self is plucked out of time. Cut to the unit class reunion. Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, retired, is looking forward to seeing some old faces he hasn't seen in quite some time, though his successor, Colonel Crichton, admits that there was one key person from the brigadier's time in charge of unit who they could not track down to send an invite. Guess who? And guess who just showed up at the reception desk completely bewildering some poor corporal who doesn't realize that when it comes to Unit, a strange little man showing up and calling himself the Doctor is a perfectly normal thing. And so is the second Doctor randomly throwing shade at random authority figures. After meeting Colonel Crichton, the Doctor quips that his replacement was pretty unpromising, too. That's the Brigadier's cue to escort the Doctor outside for a walk before any further pleasantries are exchanged. Once the Doctor and the Brigadier are outside, the triangular time scoop appears in the air again. Despite the Brigadier's protest that he's getting too old for this, the Doctor falls back on a very tried and true piece of advice. When I say run, run. But there's no running from the time scoop. Eagle Moss strikes again. You know, I really should have done this show when they were still in business. They could have sponsored this one. At the Eye of Horion, the Fifth Doctor again feels his second incarnation being removed from time. For the record, it's not a great feeling. You should ask your doctor if losing past incarnations of the doctor is right for you. In the dimly lit control room in an unknown location, two more figures are pulled out of the monitor and placed on the game board. Cut to the third doctor driving down a country road in his trusty yellow open-seat roadster, Bessie, when he too glimpses the time scoop in the sky. He does a bit of daring driving to evade it, but then the time scoop drops down on top of him. Both the doctor and his car disappear. The fifth doctor tells his companions that something is very certainly wrong and asks them to help him back to the TARDIS. The situation is desperate enough that he needs to try to contact his previous incarnations elsewhere in time it's another day in the life of an investigative reporter for sarah jane smith except that k-9 warns her not to venture out he senses danger though he really can't describe what kind of danger other than that the doctor is somehow involved but that's not enough to keep her from her work the Fourth Doctor and Romana are on a boating trip until they too are scooped out of time, but this time something's gone wrong. As much emotion as you can gauge from a black-gloved hand, whoever is plucking the Doctors out of time is not happy with the result. The Fourth Doctor and Romana are trapped in the monitor, never to get their own Eagle Moss figurines. In the TARDIS, the Doctor has started his time machine on course and promptly passes out. On Earth again, Sarah Jane is the next victim of the time scoop. "'Her figurine is placed next to that of the third Doctor. "'Back to the TARDIS, the Doctor is now physically fading away, "'as in becoming almost fully transparent. "'He hasn't regained consciousness, "'but wherever he programmed the TARDIS to go, it has arrived. "'And when Turlo turns on the screen to see what's outside, "'a dark, menacing tower is visible.' I mean, of course it would be dark and menacing. And in the mysterious control room, that black gloved hand places figurines of the fifth Doctor, Tegan, and Turlow on the board. Man, whoever this is, I hope they have, like, you know, both hands, because we just keep seeing the one. And hey, with all of the Doctors apparently trapped, it's crisis time on Gallifrey, where the inner circle of the High Council of the Time Lords is in emergency session. Whatever's going on is an emergency for them, too. Enough of an emergency that they've resorted to calling in the Doctor's arch-enemy and fellow renegade Time Lord, the Master. If he does their bidding, they can offer him a whole new cycle of regenerations. And their bidding? Go and rescue the Doctor. And the Doctor may need rescuing. The first Doctor finds himself in a maze of weird, angular, mirrored corridors, trapped with his granddaughter Susan, now all grown up. And there's a Dalek in there with them, which the Doctor tricks into blasting a hole through the walls of the maze and exterminating itself in the process. Beyond the maze lies the same dark tower, which the Doctor immediately recognizes as the Tower of Rassilon, something found only in a place called the Death Zone on Gallifrey. The Death Zone is also the topic of the Time Lord's briefing for the Master's benefit. Dormant since the end of Gallifrey's violent past, the Death Zone is now active again, draining Gallifrey's power source. When the High Council tried to seek the Doctor's help, his trail through time and space, all of his trails, led to the Death Zone and abruptly ended. The Death Zone is also where we catch up with the second Doctor and the Brigadier, who narrowly escape a Cyberman or two, and the third Doctor, in his car, who rescues Sarah Jane when she drops out of nowhere. Elsewhere in the Death Zone, the first Doctor and Susan discover the TARDIS and go inside to find the fifth Doctor and friends. They devise a plan. The fifth Doctor, Susan, and Tegan will go to the Tower of Rassilon, while the first Doctor and Turlo stay in the TARDIS. The Time Lord High Council gives the Master credentials to prove that he's working for them, and they send him into the death zone. The Master first encounters the third Doctor and Sarah, but even upon presenting his credentials, he finds the Doctor unwilling to trust him. When laser beams start shooting out of the sky, that would seem to confirm the Doctor's suspicions, and he and Sarah drive off at least for a little bit, until one of the lasers strikes the car, leaving them to make their way to the Tower of Rassilon on foot. The fifth Doctor and his party are the next ones to run into the Master, and for the second time in one day, he is unable to convince the Doctor he's here to help, even after showing the Doctor the recall device that could take them back to the Time Lords. Cybermen ambush both of them, and the Doctor warns Susan and Tegan get back to the TARDIS without him. The Cybermen start blasting, and the Master is brought down by a ricocheting piece of rock. The Doctor grabs the recall device and beams himself back to the Time Lord capital, leaving the Master to face his fate. Susan twists her ankle on her way back to the TARDIS, but she and Tegan make it back safely. The First Doctor and Tegan set out to complete the trip to the tower. Turlow and the injured Susan stay in the TARDIS in the time lord capital the doctor doubts the claim that some outside attacker has activated the death zone it has to be someone on the inside and as proof the doctor opens up the recall device to show that it had a homing beacon designed to make the master easy for the cybermen to find and since the time lords expected the master to find the doctor this would make it easier for anyone who picked up on the homing signal to kill them both it was a set-up barusa the time lord president pins the blame on the castellan the time lord chief of security a search of the castellan's quarters reveals that he or at least his quarters were in possession of forbidden knowledge from the time of rassilon Barusa orders his interrogation, but when the Castellan resists, he's shot down by the guards. Well, that was all wrapped up very neatly. The Master offers to help the Cybermen. The third Doctor and Sarah run into a Rastan warrior robot, programmed to kill at the slightest movement of its prey, though they are saved, quite accidentally, by a platoon of Cybermen who try unsuccessfully to overpower the robot. The second Doctor and the Brigadier are attacked by a Yeti in one of the passages, and narrowly escape, finding an entrance to the tower into the tomb of Rassilon. The first Doctor and Tegan walk right in the front door of the tower, finding a checkerboard-like pattern on the floor. It's so conspicuous the Doctor assumes it's a trap, and he's right. He and Tegan hide as the Master escorts the Cybermen into the tower, but when they try to cross the checkerboard, they discover only too late that the Master has led them into a trap, one which he is able to... "'to just walk across. "'He drops a clue to the first Doctor, "'allowing him and Tegan to follow. "'The third Doctor and Sarah also enter the Tower. "'They encounter ghostly visions "'of the Doctor's past companions, "'but the Doctor realizes that all is not as it seems. "'Elsewhere in the Tower, "'the second Doctor and the Brigadier "'encounter similar apparitions of Jamie and Zoe, "'that Doctor's companions, "'which similarly prove to be mere ghosts from the past.' The first, second, and third doctors and companions converge upon the tomb of Rassilon, and even the TARDIS arrives with Turlow and Susan aboard, having escaped an attempt by the Cybermen to blast their way inside. Inscriptions on a stone column make it clear that this is where Rassilon is entombed, and having come all this way and survived the dangers of the Death Zone, whoever takes the ring from the hand of Rassilon's body will have immortality. But there's also a cryptic statement— "'He who loses shall win, and he who wins shall lose.' "'From the shadows emerges the master, "'who intends to claim immortality for himself "'after killing each doctor in turn, "'though his plan is cut short when the brigadier, "'who immediately recognizes him, "'catches him by surprise and knocks him out cold. "'It's just not a good day to be the master.' It never is. In the Time Lords' capital, the doctor finds his every attempt to return to the death zone to help his past selves is being blocked. He's all but under house arrest. Worse yet, when he tries to file a protest with President Barusa, President Barusa is nowhere to be found. The doctor advises the guards they'd better search for the president, but he is still not allowed to leave the council chambers. He searches for hidden doors behind every curtain, behind a picture of Rassilon playing the harp, a picture which is hung right in front of the harp shown in the picture, a picture which is so clear that the doctor can read the sheet music. Surely that's not the key. Except that it is. The section of the wall containing the painting slides open, revealing the dimly lit control room. Presiding over the game of Rassilon is none other than Barusa himself. He's been president for a long time, but he's about to be term-limited. He wants to claim immortality and be the president forever. Hey, he probably just wants to make Gallifrey great again. He's wearing the coronet of Rassilon, which amplifies his willpower enough that the Fifth Doctor follows him, zombie-like, to transport to the tomb of Rassilon. Barusa tries to exert his authority over the other Doctors, but they turn the tables on him, using their combined willpower to free the Fifth Doctor from Barusa's mind control. A face appears over the body of Rassilon, the face of Rassilon himself. Barusa steps forward to claim immortality. Rassilon gives him every chance to rethink that decision. You know, the usual, you want to phone a friend, ask the audience, is that your final answer? You really want some of this sweet immortality? Yes, but hey, let's ask the doctors anyway. Do they think Barusa has earned immortality? The fifth, second, and third doctors say he hasn't. But the First Doctor disagrees. Berusa should totally have immortality. Berusa puts the ring on his own finger. Rassilon says that Berusa is the latest in a line of Time Lords who have ventured into the tomb to become immortal, and just like them, he will get the reward he has earned. That's when we notice that the base of Rassilon's final resting place has the stone carvings of past Time Lords, as well as an open space for one more. Berusa wins, but Berusa loses berusa vanishes the ring reappears on rassilon's hand berusa's face takes its place in the open slot immortalized as a face carved in stone only his eyes still moving helplessly to witness the passage of time betty wishes he hadn't done that Rassilon asks the Doctors if they want to be immortal, but hey, they're time travelers, they undoubtedly know that Big Finish Productions is going to be a thing, they don't need Rassilon's immortality. The Doctors, including the Fourth Doctor, return to their own places in time and space with their companions, but not before more Time Lords arrive, informing the Doctor that with Barusa having basically deposed himself, the Doctor should take charge and be the new president. To put up politely, the doctor doesn't want the job, but he says something about traveling back to the capital in his TARDIS, probably taking the long way around. The end. This edition of Retrogram seems to be devoted to shows that had an absolutely crazy development curve. Maybe it didn't take quite as torturous a journey as the day after, but as the 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors was in the works longer than most typical Doctor Who stories, and went through changes of writer, plotline, and cast that are real doozies. For starters, considered by many to be the dean of classic-era Doctor Who writers, Robert Holmes was originally asked to write The Five Doctors. Holmes had written such stories as Spearhead from Space, which introduced John Pertwee's Doctor, Terror of the Autons, which introduced the Master, The Time Warrior, which debuted the Suntarans, The Ark in Space, Pyramids of Mars, The Brain of Morbius, The Deadly Assassin, The Talons of Wang Chiang, The Rebos Operation, and more. He would eventually return to Doctor Who to write Peter Davison's farewell story, The Caves of Androzani*, and a handful of Colin Baker episodes prior to Robert's death in 1986. Holmes' original idea was called The Six Doctors, and it involved— take note of this if you've been paying attention to the Jodie Whittaker era— the Cybermen controlling a robot clone of the First Doctor to help them collect genetic material from the Doctor to incorporate into cyber technology, giving Cybermen the ability to regenerate. Does that sound familiar? And it would also have run cover for why the first Doctor didn't seem quite like the first Doctor, which we'll get into that in a moment. When the current producer, John Nathan Turner, outlined which elements and characters he wanted included in the story, in addition to Holmes' Cyberman plot, Holmes kind of threw his hands in the air and said he couldn't tell a coherent story and satisfy that whole laundry list. Into that breach stepped Terence Dix, who started from scratch with the five Doctors. One item on John Nathan Turner's laundry list was the inclusion of actor Richard Herndall to replace William Hartnell as the first Doctor. Hartnell died in 1975, so the story would either have to omit the Doctor's first incarnation altogether or recast him. J.N.T. had seen Herndahl play a guest role in a 1981 episode of Blake's Seven, ironically enough, in which he wore a wig that reminded the producer of Hartnell's wig. Since The Five Doctors is now running up on 40 years old, there are now decades of criticism. Not all of it fair, leveled at Richard Herndall's interpretation of The First Doctor. But let's stop to consider that. Home video was in its infancy at the time, so there were not a bunch of Doctor Who VHS tapes of Hartnell's performances that could be referred to. Even within the BBC, many of Hartnell's episodes were still lost at this point. The 80s would really be the beginning of many of those episodes being returned to the archives from foreign broadcasters that had been sitting on film copies since the 60s. Keep in mind that at the beginning of the 80s, the entirety of the first Dalek story, all seven episodes, were thought to be gone forever. There was not an abundance of reference material for Mr. Herndall to absorb. And bear in mind, the original idea was he wouldn't be the First Doctor. He would be kind of a fake First Doctor. So it wasn't considered necessary for him to be exactly like William Hartnell. To be honest, from 1983 to this very day, I don't think he did a bad job at all. For virtually every American fan, this was our first exposure to the First Doctor. We didn't see Hartnell until after we'd seen Herndall. I don't find the performance distracting from the story or what the story is supposed to be, but your mileage may vary. The Terence Dick script for the Five Doctors didn't originally send Peter Davison to the Time Lord Capitol to deal with Barusa and the High Council in the original script. It was Tom Baker who got to return to the Time Lords to tell them once again how embarrassingly corrupt they were, but then Tom Baker decided he didn't want to appear. He had only just recently left the show and felt he was already fighting uphill typecasting battles after seven years as the Doctor. He politely but firmly declined to take part in the 20th anniversary special. Terence Dix rewrote his script to send the fifth Doctor to deal with the Time Lords. But how do you celebrate 20 years of Doctor Who without the actor who had spent the longest time in the role? The answer lies in an entire other Doctor Who story, one which never finished filming and, as such, was not ever broadcast. In 1979, the season-ending six-part story Shada, written by Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame, had its studio shooting brought to a halt by a strike of the studio technicians' union. More than two-thirds of this six-part story were in the can, and the rest could easily have been finished, except the BBC upper management decided to leave the union with a black eye as a parting gift, so they cancelled all the shows interrupted by the strike, and then very publicly blamed that on the unions. But all of Shada's location footage, and about half of its studio footage, were already in the vaults, and none of it had been seen by the public. So John Nathan Turner went through that footage from Shada, and selected a few scenes to edit into The Five Doctors'. By the way, Tom Baker's last-minute antics didn't just affect the script, but the infamous publicity photo shoot. He was supposed to appear with the other doctors in costume for the publicity photos. But JNT, having a sneaking suspicion that Baker might once again back out with little to no notice, arranged to have Tom Baker's wax figure for Madame Tussauds on hand as a stand-in. And as it turns out, Tom was a no-show for the photo shoot, so they did wind up using the wax figure. There are some infamous outtakes from the photo shoot, with some of the other doctors, John Pertwee in particular, making fun of his absent successor. But hey, that's what you get for missing an all-hands meeting. Other actors who had to drop out at the last minute were Fraser Hines as Jamie, whose appearance was dropped down to a small cameo as an illusion of Jamie. Jamie's lines were then rewritten for Victoria, but then Deborah Watling wasn't available, so the second Doctor's sidekick in the final script was the Brigadier. A cameo was written for William Russell's Ian Chesterton, companion of the first Doctor, but he was otherwise engaged, so his return to Doctor Who on television would have to wait until 2022. Also asked to take part, but unavailable for professional reasons, Katie Manning as Joe Grant. Ian Martyr as Harry Sullivan, Louise Jameson as Leela, and also for other than professional reasons, Lola Ward wasn't going to work with Tom Baker again so soon after their recent divorce, so Romana was not in the script. Until Tom Baker withdrew, and suddenly, thanks to the shot of footage, Romana was in the show after all. By the way, prior to becoming the show's producer, John Nathan Turner was the production unit manager for that 1979 season, so he was very well-versed, with what was in the can as far as shada footage. One thing that the Five Doctors did do, however, was make sure the audience knew that the one-off spin-off special K9 and Company was official, since the K9 we see here is the one given to Sarah Jane Smith in that special from the end of 1981. Of course, here's the thing: as I'm recording this podcast, we are a year or so away from the 60th anniversary special. Time Lord mythology, which inevitably crops up with all of the big round-number Doctor Who anniversary specials, has been adjusted, adjusted again, readjusted, and adjusted for inflation. Does The Five Doctors really hold up? Despite everything working against it, it really does. You think about all the obstacles The Five Doctors had to overcome from a production standpoint— If it wasn't an all-important big round number anniversary episode, it probably would have been scrapped and replaced by something simpler and easier to produce. But no, this was the 20th anniversary show, and all the marbles were in play. It was multiple doctors or nothing. And for it to be as entertaining as it is despite all of the problems it encountered on the way, it didn't just succeed, it set the bar for future episodes, future anniversary episodes to at least meet, if not try to exceed. Think of the 50th anniversary special, or the special that aired just recently as I record this, for Jodie Whittaker's last adventure, featuring... Stop me if you've heard this one before. Every living original series doctor except Tom Baker, plus an actor filling in for William Hartnell. I mean, it's almost like this episode set some new traditions in motion. As for The Five Doctors having an American premiere... It was used as a pledge break special by PBS, where in the UK, it was intended to go out on November 23rd, until the BBC decided that the Five Doctors would be the centerpiece of that year's Children in Need telethon, which meant holding it until November 25th. And yes, if you're wondering if fans in the UK were baring their teeth over this decision, yes, they were for quite some time. Dungeons & Dragons, also Season 1, also Episode 11, The Box, aired Saturday morning, November twenty-sixth, 1983, on CBS. The story so far... It all started when a group of kids decided to try out the Dungeons and Dragons coaster ride at the local amusement park. Because, you know, at the height of the satanic panic, when you could be forgiven for thinking that D&D stood for Dungeons and Dudes doing devilish deeds on Donahue, of course, these rides were all over the place. But this one sends them into an alternate dimension, where they're surrounded by real creatures from Dungeons and Dragons. They are helped by the Dungeon Master, a diminutive wizard who gives them the armor and weapons and character class best suited to them. But hot on their trail is Venger, a warrior imbued with the power of evil. And now they're just trying to survive long enough to find a way home alive. The Box Eric the Cavalier Stinks No, I mean he really stinks. An encounter with a creature that's somewhere between a skunk and a chicken has left Eric with just a bit of an odor. He's standing around in his underwear while waiting for his clothes to dry out after a wash, but since he's in the world of Dungeons & Dragons, there's not really any detergent or washing machines, so everything for Miles around can probably smell him right now in his underwear. Awkward. As if that's not enough, there's an earthquake powerful enough to open a rift in the ground. Hank falls in and is briefly knocked out. When his friends climb into the rift to help him, Bobby finds a locked treasure chest. Eric is eager to open it, but everyone seems to think that may not be the best idea. And, by the way, everyone else includes Dungeon Master, who appears out of nowhere with a warning. The box contains great danger, something of great value and yet it also contains nothing he calls it zandora's box after the sorceress who left it here the box can only be opened safely in the shadow of skull mountain at high noon and the dungeon master says terrible things will happen if it's opened anywhere else he leaves them with a strange map and just like that dungeon master is gone The kids hoist the box out of the rift, noting that it's really heavy for a box that supposedly contains nothing, and they start the day-long journey to Skull Mountain. They're almost immediately attacked by upright frog-like creatures who look a little bit like Lovecraft's Deep Ones. The kids are outnumbered fast, and the frog dudes pry the box open, and, you know, I think the frog dudes missed that whole safety talk about taking it to Skull Mountain first... Three of the creatures climb into the box to bring out the treasure, and Eric slams the lid shut on them. When the lid is opened again, there is no sign of the creatures. There is no sign of anything in there. The box is empty. Diana realizes that the map given to them by Dungeon Master shows that if opened in various locales, the box can be used to travel to other dimensions, perhaps even the one the kids call home. They reach the base of Skull Mountain, which is kind of like Mount Rushmore, Except that whoever carved a bunch of heads into the top of the mountain forgot to carve, you know, faces made of skin. That's funny. It didn't take as long as the map said. The shadow of the skulls falls on the base of the mountain. Time to open the chest. It contains a stairway leading down into darkness. Everyone except Eric and Presto descend the stairs until they reach what looks like a giant chessboard with an elaborate clock in the middle of it. When the clock strikes, the black squares disappear, and they all fall through. They catch themselves by grabbing the cage-like walls of the tunnel they're falling into, and they're greeted by the arrival of what looks like a very hungry giant wasp. Hearing the screams coming from the chest, Presto starts making his way down to help. When Eric realizes this means he'll be guarding the chest alone, he follows Presto, only to see one of Avengers' shadow demons close the lid of the chest. The stairs disintegrate, and Presto and Eric plunge into the same predicament as their friends. With a little bit of Presto's magic and Hank's heroics, everyone emerges from the chest safe and sound, where Dungeon Master is waiting to point out they hadn't actually reached Skull Mountain. It was an illusion cast by Venture. After the day of grueling travel that they were expecting, the real Skull Mountain is in sight. When its shadow falls on the chest, they open it, and out pops Zandora the Sorceress. Diana asks if she can send the kids home, and Zandora says she can. But first, she casts a spell to zap the box and the kids to the top of a dangerous precipice. From this location, the chest will get them home. Uni, the baby unicorn, must stay behind in Zandora's care, and after a tearful farewell, Bobby joins the others in climbing down another staircase, one that falls apart as the precipice outside crumbles. The kids fall into another void, only to land in the roller coaster car, the one that first brought them here? Outside the chest, Venger arrives. Zandora tries to fend him off, but Venger flies into the open chest to follow his prey. The kids come to a safe landing in the amusement park. They've made it home. But Venger has followed, seeking their magical weapons, weapons which do not protect them in their own dimension. Not only do the kids decide to return, they allow Venger back through, otherwise he'll destroy their world. Zandora pulls a fast one on Venger and sends him into yet another dimension, and then closes and moves the chest. I'm sure that's the last we've seen of Venger. Until next week. The end. Okay, so not one of these people floated the idea that the chest might be a mimic. Y'all haven't been playing Dungeons & Dragons very long, have you? From a production standpoint, Dungeons & Dragons was a Marvel production, and for years after it ran on CBS, it was part of syndicated programming blocks like the Marvel Action Universe. Let's call that the MAU for short. Or not. It had an afterlife that few other shows of its era did, even as the age of the DVD was dawning. The animation itself was actually produced by the animation department of Toei Studios. Toei Animation made inroads into the American market in the late 60s by producing the animation for the Rankin and Bass TV series based on Smokey the Bear, though their primary stock-in-trade was international hits originally produced for Japanese broadcasters such as Space Pirate Captain Harlock, Galaxy Express 999, Transformers, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, and Sailor Moon. If the animation of Dungeons & Dragons has a bit of an anime flavor to it, you're not wrong, and that's why. The 80s really was Toei's busiest decade for handling animation outsourced from the Western world. You've also seen their work in such shows as Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, Strawberry Shortcake, G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, and the Holograms, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and the real Ghostbusters. The episode was written by Jeffrey Scott, a veteran Super Friends writer who also wrote the scripts for most of the Pac-Man animated series that was still on the air on ABC at this time. He also wrote episodes of Spider Woman, Plastic Man, Captain Caveman, Thundar the Barbarian, eight other episodes of Dungeons & Dragons, Captain N the Game Master, Muppet Babies, James Bond Jr., Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, and... Mega Man. And he does live action, too. He also wrote installments of The Powers of Matthew Starr and Mr. Merlin as well. But most of his work, which continues to the present day, is in animation. So, was the Satanic Panic really a factor in the TV series? The Satanic Panic, of course, is that period of the late 70s and early 80s, coinciding with the rise of Dungeons & Dragons' popularity as a paper-and-dice role-playing game, during which overwrought religious fundamentalists repeatedly insisted to Phil Donahue or any other daytime talk show host who would listen that with its emphasis on combat against demons, its use of magic, and so on, D&D must almost certainly be a conduit ready to take kids on their own roller coaster ride into the world of Satan worship. Or maybe it was Satan, or some guy named Stan... I forget. It's all a jumble, and not much of it made sense in the first place. This movement brought us such uh, <clears throat> entertainment as the miserable TV movie of the week, Rona Jaffe's Mazes and Monsters, and had a lot of our moms raising an eyebrow when we said we wanted to go to the mall and get a four-sided die, an eight-sided die, a ten-sided die, a twelve-sided die, a twenty-sided die, and some pewter miniatures, and go play games with our friends. I mean, how harmful could that be? One pressure group wanted each episode to be accompanied by ominous on-screen warnings that Dungeons & Dragons has led people to die horribly. But hey, now that we've told you that, here's the cartoon version. All I know is a bunch of my friends and I used to get together to play D&D, and Rifts, and occasionally a game that used the rulebooks of both the Star Trek and Doctor Who role-playing games by FASA. And we had fun! I never once saw anyone shout at, with, or even near the devil who, oddly enough, never even showed up. I don't think he even rolled a character. What a loser. His mom probably objected on moral grounds. He could have scored so many free Cheetos. Now notice how just after the earthquake hits, Eric is suddenly fully dressed again, and not only does he reek from head to toe, dude can get suited up super fast. I'm impressed and repulsed at the same time. When they are going down the stairway, one of the characters says, It feels like we're walking into the Twilight Zone. It's an interesting footnote. The Twilight Zone, at this point, is at least 20 years in the past. Uh, The earlier episodes even further in the past. The Twilight Zone is now a reference that you can sneak into a kid's show, and the audience just gets it with no further explanation. Now, any time the series threatened to send the kids home, they always fell victim to the Gilligan exemption. You know, the series will keep going, so the kids will wind up right back where they started, with the status quo of the show restored, just in case the episodes are rerun in a different order. Any time you have a show that would cease to exist if you undid that status quo... The Gilligan Exemption kicks in, whether you're Land of the Lost or Star Trek Voyager. It's an immutable law of the pre-1990s television universe. So everybody stays in the dimension of Dungeons & Dragons, where they can contemplate the fact that Zandora looks kind of disturbingly like Dungeon Master in drag. But it's interesting how the Gilligan Exemption is triggered here, out of a sense of personal responsibility to their world as a whole. Hank realizes that if their weapons don't work anymore and they're powerless to fight Venger, Venger will destroy everything that they are hoping to return to. The only answer is to lead Venger back into the fantasy land he came from, even if it means this attempt to return home is a bust. Not everyone is on board with Hank's noble sacrifice. The only thing that gets Eric back into the roller coaster is, well, let's be charitable and call it enlightened self-interest. But even if it 's just to save his own skin, he does go back with the others. If only people in the real world would approach you know wearing a mask to so the spread of an infectious disease or voting with that same sense of duty to all the other people around them, wouldn 't that be neat? <laughs> If we learn anything from the shows that aired the week of November 20th, 1983, I suppose that lesson is that not every show is going to be something of earth-shattering importance. But let's think back to some of the other things happening around this time in 1983. Just a couple of weeks earlier, from November 7th through 11th, 1983, NATO conducted an annual war game exercise called Able Archer, basically a simulated exercise for a scenario that could lead to the deployment of nuclear weapons. World War III. Soviet intelligence had just enough feelers out there to know that something was up, and some of the more paranoid personalities in the Soviet leadership began to float the idea that the war games were cover for launching an actual war. Hmm, interesting plot idea. As was often the case, new procedures and new technologies were being tested by the NATO forces, and not being familiar with these, the Soviets actually put some of their air forces on high alert and put live nukes on their planes in case it was the real deal. Only when Able Archer 83 ended on November 11th did they breathe a sigh of relief. Some historians in both countries have retroactively claimed that it's silly that a couple of weeks before kids were watching Terra Hawks and Dungeons and Dragons, the world stood at the brink of nuclear war. But it was only in March of 1983 that President Reagan and his speechwriter coined the phrase evil empire to describe the Soviets, which, you know, really doesn't seem to leave a lot of wiggle room open to friendly relations. And let's not forget that it had only been on September 26th of 1983 that Soviet Air Defense Force Colonel Stanislav Petrov had listened to his gut when the Soviet's automatic missile detection system incorrectly registered missile launches from the U.S. when nothing had been launched. According to the system, a handful of missiles had been launched, something which from a tactical and strategic standpoint made absolutely no sense. Petrov did not order a retaliatory strike, and in so doing, declined an invitation to the end of the world. He knew that was the kind of party that didn't allow you to bring a plus one. When you push that button, everyone's going, whether they have other plans or not. Or to put it simply, we were one Stanislav Petrov away from never even seeing the day after or the five doctors. It almost all ended right there. You'd think that with the help of the day after... We would have learned. And yet here we are, back again, like the Cold War never ended. So in 39 years, we've learned, let's see, checking, checking, not a damn thing. So really, the only question left is, do we have better TV shows to distract us now, or were the shows better in 1983? Talk amongst yourselves to figure that one out. The Podcast was created, researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Additional music was by Andrew Howes and DZ, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you have that nagging feeling that you've been forgetting to do something before the nukes drop, that probably means you've been forgetting to sign up as one of the Logbook's Patreon supporters. Lucky you, there's still time. Even if you can only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and the thelogbook.media and all of the related podcasts and videocasts going. You could be like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Icy Robots and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. You get show notes, occasional outtakes and other fun stuff. And of course, there's the discord. And if you're not a fan of Patreon, here's something cool. The same patron tiers are available for ongoing memberships at ko-fi.com you can also use coffee that's the aforementioned ko-fi.com if you just want to throw us a one-time donation you can also support the site by buying t-shirts mugs and even non-medical grade face masks and other goodies from our store at the logbook.redbubble.com and if you want to sign up for paramount plus and catch up on all the new star trek and there's a lot of it You can sign up for a free week through the links on our site. If you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps The Logbook out a lot. Thanks for listening, as always. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.